Spoiler alert! The conversation you're about to listen to contains major spoilers for episode 12 of ImpTab Avatar 10,000 Things, so if you don't want that spoiled, then we advise that you stop listening and come back after you finish that. But if you're weird like me and you don't care about spoilers, then just keep on listening, baby! What's shaking, everybody? It's the obligatory talkback, the show where we step outside the narrative and break down the story from our perspective as real human beings. I am real human being Ned Wilcock, your host and GM. In this talkback, we're discussing episodes 0 through 3 of ImpTab Avatar 10,000 Things, which means today I'm joined by... Caleb Anderton, the real human bean. McKenna Steele, the real Donald Duck fan. <laughs> and Christian Randall, still not a real boy. Someday. Someday. You know, maybe through the generosity of our fine Patreon patrons who are supporting <laughs> these episodes, we can build up enough funds to get you a real boy ectomy. No, that's real not boy how it would be. <laughs> We'll get you a real boy transplant or something like that. I'll take it. I, I, a desperate desire of mine. <laughs> Indeed. Well, everybody, you are listening listening to the very first episode of the obligatory talkback uh, stuff that you can expect in these episodes we're going to talk about uh, how we feel about the episodes where we think things are going some of the artistic creative process going into it maybe some theories about the future of the campaign and these first few episodes we're going to be working through a bit of a backlog so like I said we're going to go through the first four episodes of this campaign including our session zero uh, probably go a little bit longer than our later episodes will be once we actually kind of get into the flow of things. But for now, we're just excited to have this new show going on to see how it goes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It's exciting to be able to talk about some of what's going on inside of our head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I've had notes in my brain for like, man, I hope that I get to talk about that someday because that was a fun thing that happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, you know, now that we're starting this show, I'll probably forget all of them. But, you know, mm-hmm. they've been there. <laughs> yes. Those of you who have listened to our Fate episodes are well aware aware of Caleb's memory problems. Yep. Four kids and all the sleep deprivation that comes with it do wonders for your lack of memory. What? Indeed. I probably should never have kids. My lack of memory is already terrible. (laughs) Maybe it'll go the opposite way for you and your memory will get better. You never know. Well, this kind of actually leads into the first question that I have for you guys in terms of, well, starting with our session zero, this was just all about getting to know our characters. And so what I'd be interested in hearing is what were the influences that initially inspired these characters? What were the sparks that turned into these wonderful characters that we love so much now? You know, aside from just the fact that Caleb is forgetful and Amar is amnesiac. <laughs> that was separate. That just came from me wanting so badly to include Amar some more and have more adventures with him. I talked about this a little bit in my own interview, but I just fell in love with the character of Amar for the one shot and I was trying to make another character and it just didn't work. And so him having amnesia was like one of the only ways that Ned and I were talking about that I could really justify him being there as no longer an antagonist. But yeah, I've also talked about this a little bit, but I really like when we started this and decided that we were going to be forming a team of villains and that it might be a heist, like way back at the beginning of talking about the library heist before that happened, I was like, I want to be the getaway driver. Like, can my <laughs> guy, can he have an avatar motorcycle? <laughs> yeah, that's where that came from. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance was something I was already reading. Kind of informed that desire of mine. And 
I'm super pleased with where it all went. So for you, it started with the motorcycle and went from there? Kinda, yeah. I guess it did. And as I went on through character creation, the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance bled into that character a lot more, and I kind of created this own avatarified version of kind of the main character in that story. But yeah, I think that's where it started was, I just want an Avatar motorcycle. I want to be the getaway driver. <laughs> yeah. And when we initially started talking about the idea of Amar's amnesia, you know, trying to justify how we could keep him in the story, uh, there's a book that I own that was actually really helpful for me in kind of helping to work this out. There's this guy named Timothy Hickson. He has a YouTube channel called Hello Future Me, and he talks about how to write, how to build worlds. He breaks down popular stories and Avatar The Last Airbender is like his favorite media franchise of all time, so he uses lots of examples from Avatar, but he also goes into Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones and a whole bunch of other stuff to use examples from the stories that we already know and love to illustrate these principles of writing and world building. He has currently a two-book series called On Writing and World Building, and in the first volume he talks about amnesia and how it's kind of a tricky thing because it can be just such a cop-out. Mm -hmm. That was something that I was kind of worried about going into it was are people going to look at this and be like you gave him amnesia what what the heck that's not actually a good reason but part of the advice that he gave was sure you can do it if you play it right if everything is justified within the story and if you're listening to this episode then by now you've probably already heard the reasoning that we came up with for why Amar had that amnesia in the first place and it worked out so perfectly that the characters when they had their inciting incident that was involved with the Dai Li because I was already thinking thinking, hey, the Dai Li came in, they brainwashed Amar, that's how all of this happened initially. That book also, he, I don't know if this is in one of his books yet, but he has a video on his YouTube channel where he talks about how to make a good prequel, and maybe I'll dig into this a little bit more in a later episode, because we have a lot to talk about in this episode already, but I like devoured that video, and I was like, okay, this is going to be a prequel campaign to the first series of Avatar The Last Airbender, how do we overcome the pitfalls of prequels? I want to talk about that at some point, but for now, I'd rather hear what Christian McKenna have to say about the sparks of light that turned into Jetsun and Zaya. Mm -hmm. You go first, because I'm trying to remember. (laughs) (laughs) For me, I'm a sucker for the traditional hero's arc that we all learn about in English class at one point or another. Mm -hmm. One of the characters that kind of has to be there is this mentor character. Star Wars has Obi-Wan Kenobi, Avatar has Uncle Iroh. You know, there's obviously, you know, different versions of that throughout most mediums, but I thought it would be fun to kind of lean on that Uncle Iroh trope of an older person who has lived a life that they might not be the proudest of. Mm. Um, I leaned on him and I leaned on another character from the Stormlight Archive books. Uh, if you've listened to the Fate campaigns, you know how we feel about Brandon Sanderson here. Oh yeah. <laughs> but really the only thing I went into character creation with was the idea that it would be an old guy who was probably an airbender and then everything else I kind of just let happen on the moment and then so much of honestly the other two characters has informed who he is like as a full three-dimensional human it's been so fun to mess with this character because 
it's one of the few I've had in a while where I feel like the character will do things and I didn't realize he was going to do those things until mm. it happens. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, I got to figure out why he did that and justify it. And then it's going to create in-world story problems that I'm going to have to fix too. So it's been a lot of fun. It, definitely not one that I thought about a lot beforehand. It's, I've been trying specifically to lean into the whole improv idea with this. And I feel like it's been a fun, good little exercise. But it's pretty obvious you had a pretty extensive backstory, right? Like, that's always been there. That has not always been there. Really? Ned and I have worked that out. Yeah, there have been, <laughs> like, we had kind of a rough idea of, you know, Jetsun is a disgraced air nomad who, you know, he has his tattoos. So he was very revered and venerated within the air nomad culture. And so we had a couple ideas of like, okay, this is the broad strokes of maybe what happened that led him to this point. And then eventually when we received the book and I was reading through the section about the guiding wind in Avatar Roku's era, which, you know, we'll maybe save some of the specific details for that for when we get to that point in the obligatory talkback. Mm -hmm. But it all just fell into place so perfectly. Yeah, it's another one of those moments, sort of like you were talking about with the Dai Li, how we as a group kind of just said we had a Dai Li incident when we lost Loeb Sang. And you were like, I already had a plan with the Dai Li. This is all perfect. This is just working out. When the books came out, it was very much the same sort of a, oh, okay, so we accidentally made, like, this is already basically canon, and so it works. <laughs> cool. We accidentally made this easy for us. Yeah, we're, like, we're going to have to do some bending and, you know, storytelling gymnastics to make everything fit, but it's going to be a lot less than I initially thought. Yeah. I, I was thinking, how is this, like, not a bigger thing? But then the book really helped tie a lot of it together. Yeah, one thing that I will say, having done quite a bit of GMing at this point, is you'd be surprised how often it happens happens that your player will present something to you and it'll just fit so perfectly with something that you were already planning for the story. Mm. I think my job more than anything else as a GM is just finding connections. What's the connection between the world and the people who are inhabiting it? What's the connection between this NPC and the characters? It's all just about finding those connections and that that's the magic of improv and of combined <laughs> storytelling. Ned, I, I've always loved that aspect of your GM style. You know, there's a lot of different styles out there. And from the very beginning, I've loved that you are able to take all of those pieces from all different places and organize them into something beautiful. And Agreed. I'm just saying, you rock at that. So I'm glad that you choose to do it that way because you're good at it. Oh, why, thank you. Yeah, it feels more collaborative, like as an experience. And it helps, I feel like it helps us as players feel more invested in the world because we're not just random player characters who are living in the world, but we are people in this world. Our past lives, our current choices, our future desires all have an impact on not just our story, but the world around us as well. Mm -hmm. So it helps us feel invested and in, like the world is more of a living thing. Yeah. And Powered by the Apocalypse games in general, I find, are great for being able to do that. The rules can just handle anything you throw at them pretty much. But uh, McKenna, have you been able to remember sort of the origins for Zaya? Listen, so the origin is that I am the worst player you could have. <laughs> and by that, I mean, I am usually always the last one to give a GM any player information. Hmm. <laughs> 
I think everybody had already chosen their bending style and I was like, okay, so I could be water or earth. And I was like, I was already earth with Taya. Uh, so I was like, okay, cool water. And I don't know, I didn't really have an idea of where I wanted to go with her. I feel like I just kind of sat down and I was like, okay, I don't know what she looks like. I don't know who she is really. Let's just look at her backstory and start with there and see kind of who she develops into based on what her backstory is. Mm -hmm. That helped a ton, I think, to kind of develop who she is and kind of her attitudes of life. Then as far as everything else, I don't know. I just, a lot of the time, it's usually part of me that just comes out mixed in with their own personal life experiences. Mm -hmm. And then we sat, I think we sat down for the first recording and I was like, do I give her an accent? <laughs> and then we were all like, yeah, you, you give her like a Southern accent. And I was like, ah, I don't know. It feels like it's too much. I don't know. Like we all have like so many different kinds of voices that we're already doing. And they were like, no, no. And then like I tried it in the first couple episodes and they were like, McKenna, you didn't try it. And I was like, yes, I did. And they were like, no, you really didn't. And I was like, you guys are being dramatic. And then I went back and listened. I was like, oh, no, I really didn't. So, I don't know. I feel like there wasn't much that I based off of. It just kind of grew as I wrote. Yeah, and that is also a testament to the improv style of playing, that it's good to have sort of a baseline of who your character is, but the more you leave open, the more you can discover who that character is in the moment based on the circumstances they're in. Mm -hmm. So, like, as we started getting into those first few episodes of actually portraying these characters, what would you say maybe was what was easy about inhabiting your character and discovering who they are? What was difficult? What has surprised you to discover about your character? Yeah, I... What's been easy has been how welcoming she is to everybody. Mm. I think it was surprising to me at first. Like, I figured that she would be this way. And I think that is kind of a part of her playbook, too, um, is just kind of, you know, talking to people and getting to know people and forming allies. And so that part's been easy. And I was very surprised at how quickly she trusted Amar, mm -hmm. but it felt right in the moment and it felt nice. But something that's been difficult is like in their backstory, like there are very obvious reasons as to why she does not trust her bending abilities. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the dice very much helped to <laughs> solidify that she does not trust her bending abilities. But it was, I don't know, it, it was at times hard to remember that because I would always want to be like, oh, let's use my bending. But then I'd have to be like, but she doesn't trust her bending. And so it'd be like this back and forth of wanting to do what I you do in this in this universe is you do your water bending, your fire bending, but having to remember to try and use that restraint. She's interesting. She's been doing a lot of growing as we've gone on, and so it's been interesting kind of seeing a lot of that. But did mm -hmm. that answer that? Did I answer that question? Yeah. Or did I just ramble? Could be both, right? Why not both? <laughs> I also was kind of surprised at the blend of kind of sass and tenderness that we see in Zaya. Yeah. A lot of the sass comes from just the fact that she's played by McKenna Steele, I think. Yes. And I was expecting you to kind of lean a bit more into that at the beginning but I am very glad that you leaned into some of your inbred tenderness as well. Zaya has been a very comforting and very, you know, she is a waterbender. She helps to soothe. Yes, and I think I had intended to go the way that you thought it was going to, 
but that initial moment with Amar, I think, was a very pivotal moment Mm -hmm. of, okay, this is kind of more the path that she's going to head down. I love that unexpected blend because it makes her feel so much more like a real person rather than just like a caricature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know in these first three, four episodes, I definitely had Jetsun in my head as more of a caricature, kind of the stern older man who was very by the books and would kind of be like a foil to these wild kids. Um, I think the fact that you two both, well, and like some of the way the NPCs that Ned portrayed acted around and about Jetsun really helped inform who he ended up becoming. Like, again, I think for all of us, I think for the whole campaign, really, that first moment where McKenna came in and showed that mercy and that tenderness right away towards Amar, it gave all of us a chance to, I feel like, show a side other than we initially, I think for all three of us, another side than we initially intended. Like, that's when Jetsun suddenly was like, oh yeah, he has a very easy cry switch, apparently, and he's <laughs> secretly a big softy. Mm-hmm. And that, like, pretty quickly allowed for the little kind of shenanigan with tricking Wanshi Tong, a little episode later, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, it's definitely in my head when we were doing the character creation, I intended him to just kind of be stern. And I think we see a bit more of that in the beginning when he's kind of like snapping people on the head a little bit more. And it's still there as part of the character, but he just. It has surprised me how much more of a real person he feels like as time goes on, because he just reacts to situations like he would, realistically. It's a... It's fun and nuanced in a way that I wasn't necessarily expecting. I was kind of, I think, a little bit hearkening to the idea of the original Avatar series where it's like, this is a kid's show, but it's like, there's more going on and it's deeper than that. (laughs) Yeah, I think that initial decision that McKenna made to decide to just trust Amar and to accept him really kind of set the tone for the entire campaign in a lot of ways, and especially the group dynamics here, seeing this unexpected trust from Zaya, this unexpected tenderness and emotion in Jetsun and this unexpected vulnerability and kind of fear from Amar with all of his bravado and his facade that he puts up all the time. Yeah, that definitely informed a lot of my thoughts and feelings as Amar going into this group. There's a lot of things that change and are difficult and things like that that come up in portraying a character. And I I actually love that we're getting to do this on a much longer term scale than just our fate campaigns because you get to see how these characters do change. Um, I do have a question specifically about Amar. Yeah. Do you feel like it's more difficult to not remember what you're not supposed to remember? Like (laughs) to not sort of lead your character by the nose occasionally? Sometimes that is difficult. And then other times it's very freeing just to completely open yourself up to like, yes, I am this character, but without a lot of that, what's been going on in the past, he's free to act in the moment and react to what's going on however he wants to, however he is genuinely feeling at this time. So I'd say a bit of both. That makes sense. The whole empty cup idea. Yeah. That's something you and Ned talked about, right? Yes. Yeah, we we talked a little bit about, you know, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance already in this episode, but something that Caleb and I talked about before we started recording is, you know, he'd been studying some of this kind of Buddhist stuff and I'd been starting to study Taoism, especially with like the Tao of Pooh, which is a wonderful, 
wonderful book. Mm-hmm. So good. Since then, I've started reading some, like I've started reading an awesome translation of the Tao Te Ching by Marshall Mullinax. I've read some Buddhist works by Thich Nhat Hanh. And Caleb and I were looking at these and one of the great things about Eastern storytelling as opposed to Western storytelling is Western storytelling is so black and white and isn't really representative of what the world is actually like. And so we wanted to use not only the setting, but also the system itself as a way to bring in a bit of Eastern storytelling and a bit of Eastern philosophy. These ideas that it's not all just black and white. Uh, There are places in the Avatar Legends book where it talks about how there are no absolute villains, there are no perfect heroes, there are just people with different motivations trying to get by in the world. And so Caleb had found a few particular Buddhist principles that he thought were significant and sent those over to me. And one of those was the empty cup. That story that Wan Shitong told at the beginning that ostensibly came from Monkey Atso is an ancient Buddhist parable that we, you know, basically just kind of co-opted and gave to Monkey Atso. <laughs> but that's been something that I've really enjoyed is just this little way to kind of introduce some of these Eastern ways of thinking that are a bit more compassionate it towards the world and towards the people who inhabit it, I think. And it's been really fun having Wan Shi Tong as this wisdom spirit who is very knowledgeable and who's able to share some of these things. And I mentioned this, I think, at the beginning of the campaign that I want to portray Wan Shi Tong as more of a sympathetic character initially. Then we can eventually see kind of his descent into bitterness. So that's my thoughts on it. I've been kind of rambling. Uh, Caleb, anything else that you want to share on that? Yeah, I also, because you guys had all read the Tao of Pooh and we're talking about it. I read the Tao of Pooh and then I picked up a no-nonsense Buddhism for beginners book, having no experience with it beforehand. And yeah, that was really fun to be able to look at Amar's journey and give it a bit more of a Eastern philosophical spiritual twist. And so I'm actually excited for a lot more of the interaction between Amar and Wan Shi Tong as that comes up. We haven't had a ton of it yet, but uh, we kind of decided that in that way, Wan Shi Tong is going to be a bit of a guy to Amar. And it's just really fun. It's really fun to take stuff that you don't know about and learn about it and start to try to integrate it in a creative way into a story. And it's just been really fun. I'm having a blast. That's really interesting. I wonder just, you know, with natural biases and stuff, we are all Western culture born and raised. And I feel like you too, especially more so than McKenna and I, have done a little bit more research into the whole Eastern philosophy and ideas like that. And how this story could be a sort of marriage or a blend of the two just just because i mean western influences are going to be there because of who we are and the lives we've led but bringing in these other ideas that might have just kind of been on the periphery for me i've always been interested in ideas like that but it's cool that you guys have consciously tried to put them into the very like fabric of the storytelling Mm -hmm. i don't do things by halves very well i hyper focus and i just like (laughs) do a deep dive get a little obsessed for a while. (laughs) So it's fun to have a place to channel that energy. Yeah. And I think it's been really fun seeing how these characters and like their relationships have developed and how they interact with the world. Because I find that a lot of like Buddhist and Taoist teachings are about, for me, kind of at the core of a lot of it is just compassion. Compassion for yourself, compassion for others, compassion for the world itself. Like we talked about earlier, we've been kind of surprised at the amount of compassion that we've seen in each of these characters. So I think it's kind of seeped subtly into the way that these relationships have been developing. 
And that was actually one of my other questions is, what are your favorite things about how your characters' relationships have developed throughout the course of this campaign? Oh, it's, I mean, starting from the very beginning, I guess even up until episode three, again, kind of harkening back to the idea of like, he's, Jetsune to me started out as much more two-dimensional just because that was easier to wrap my head around before I got a lot of these in. But through the interactions I had with the other two, it was just so interesting to see, like at first my I thought was, oh, Zaya is this upstart ne'er-do-well who's just running around the library being loud and needs to, you know, be taught how to be a good knowledge seeker. And relatively quickly, it was apparent to me, at least, that she was going to have a lot to teach me because I was stuck in my little old ways sometimes and I needed this youth and this energy and this perspective. And the same thing from Amar, um, due to quote unquote backstory shenanigans, um, <laughs> Amar is very important to Jetsun. Hmm. He sees him as an opportunity to perhaps not undo some of the things he's done in his past, but maybe just the idea of balance, maybe maybe balance out some of what he did in the past. Maybe if this individual truly is an empty cup in front of him, maybe he could try and help and make sure that what fills the cup is worth being filled with. So, I mean, it's a little bit of a, Jetsun is flawed. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, there's definitely some selfish aspects there that he needs to work on, but that's been like an interesting development I found that I didn't expect as far as the relationship relationships have changed between these characters because Amar definitely in Jetsun's mind I feel like in the beginning was more of a project than a person but now and again even by episode three after they've had a little bit of the buzzard wasps were episode three mm -hmm. yeah so that interaction I feel like was a really good solidifying moment to really kind of get some of those relationships on the right path to where they probably should be going rather than where they started yeah that was something that I thought was pretty fascinating is these first three episodes essentially from session zero up through episode two was pretty much all just setting the stage who are these characters figuring out how they interact with each other and then we took a pretty sharp 180 into the buzzard wasp brawl episode where it was all action but before we get to that i'd like to give others opportunities to talk about you know the development of these relationships we had in the first few episodes um yeah i think definitely at first with jetsune and zaya it was very much um oh yeah, he's just, you know, he'll just tell me what to do and I'll roll my eyes and then be like, yeah, whatever, okay. Not like a fatherly figure, but just kind of like a uncle figure. <laughs> Where it's just like, yeah, you're gonna try and tell me what to do, but we kind of have like a goofy relationship. But I think the little moment of seeing him emotional by the moment with Amar at the beginning kind of was like, oh, you know, he does care and kind of changed how she felt a little bit and was kind of like, okay, maybe there is more to this than just him trying to pester me and he's trying to make me better and I'm fine. Like, I'm cool. I'm a super cool person. How can you make a cool person be even cooler? <laughs> so with the group, him and Loeb saying were obviously, I think we had talked about how they had known each other longer. And so I think there had always kind of been in that group a little bit of a third wheel. And so with Amar, it felt as if there was almost like a, okay, I get my own friend now. You have your friend. <laughs> 
I have my friend now, okay? And so I think part of that was also just kind of an excitement of, yeah, yeah, you can come. Yeah, okay, Jetsun, yeah, we'll go get your friend and then we can be in this little group and then I don't have to just be me and Marmar. I can have this guy. Aww. Almost just like a comfort at that point and excitement to just have somebody new, especially as they're getting to know each other, someone that is kind of into pranks a little bit and just doesn't take life too seriously and that she feels like she can vibe with. Like compared to her, everybody's pretty serious at the library. And so I think it's nice for her to have someone that is kind of similar playing field of like, Hey man, it's chill. That was also absolutely unexpected for me to find almost a little bit of a kindred spirit in Zaya, where Amar doesn't remember his past, has been thrown into this new group, and is just looking for some way to connect. And man, that whole conversation about pranks and confetti and glitter and stuff as Zaya and Amar are making their way up the stairs just right at the beginning, that was so unexpected and so fun. And it was really encouraging for Amar because especially with his memory gone, nothing matters too much because because there's nothing to matter to Amar at that point. Like, everything is chill because there's nothing serious yet. And so that was a very fun way to bond over that that Amar wasn't expecting. And then as well with Jetsoon, Amar's idea of Jetsoon was very similar at the beginning. Like, oh boy, he's just going to be rambling and droning on constantly and then seeing how he really does care for us. And then, okay, with the buzzard wasps, seeing Jetsoon's competence in combat... Holy cow, that stepped up Amar's respect for Jetsoon several notches. That was a big change, and I think it's fun for this stuff to happen totally naturally like that. Like, your opinions slowly change like they do in real life. Yeah, and I definitely have some stuff I want to say about the Buzzard Wasps, but first, one specific question I have for you, Caleb, is when did you decide that Amar liked Zaya? <laughs> Man, was that as early as episode three? Because <laughs> we have, like, starting in episode one, The Empty Cup, she sits down and guys and comforts you mm -hmm. and then in episode two before you head out to misty palms there's that moment where she's going off to do some stuff and you're like hey wait up you know let me let me come walk with you like there's kind of these evidences from the very first couple episodes that there's at least a connection there so i'm wondering at what point did that turn into something a little bit more I don't think it had turned into more just yet. It was at the beginning, there was the guiding and comforting that happened that definitely made Amar more comfortable with her. And then the hey, wait up was a bit more just kind of striving to find connection with the person he felt was more approachable out of the two. <laughs> um, okay, if I'm being honest, I think that Amar first realized there was something more for Zaya when the buzzard wasps attacked her and they were all over her and he had to get those off. That's where I think it happened. Um, side note, this was not planned. I personally, I am an absolute hopeless romantic. Ask my wife. I had even like had plans. I'm like, okay, this campaign doesn't need any lovey-dovey stuff. I'm even going to make Amar slightly older. So that might be potentially awkward with Zaya or anything. We're just going to see where it goes without any of that. And I'm so bad at that. Like I said, I'm a hopeless romantic and that just bleeds into literally every character I make. Also, during the playing of Amar, he came off a lot more like, yes, he may be be in his 30s as a human being, but mentally he's a bit younger, I think. And the memory loss didn't help with that. And so I think that finding this connection with somebody who's also, you know, cut from the same cloth, enjoyed pranks and not taking life too seriously, it all kind of built gradually. And yeah, like I said, I'm just a sucker for that type of thing. And so it has to be everywhere. And it just took a little life-threatening situation to solidify it. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, like I said, there's that big 180 into Buzzard 
Wasp Brawl, our first combat of the campaign, where stuff got very technical and very mechanical very quickly. This is the episode where it's like, okay, we really are learning how to play this game on the fly as we record, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, you guys did a good job editing that one because it <laughs> needed a lot of, wait, what am I doing? How does this work? cut (laughs) so much yeah you know that is one thing that i'm not sure that we've super addressed on the show before is the fact that this is essentially the only time that we get to play this game because all of our other campaigns are DD 5e because that's what all of our friends want to play essentially Mm -hmm. but it is very refreshing to get into this new system even though it is a big cognitive shift to make from something like DD, where it's all about hit points and all about the math and all the crazy numbers going into it over to something like this which is just a vast different type of combat system. Uh, it's wild, but it's a lot of fun. Honestly, story-based combat is really refreshing. I love it. I, yeah, I'm a big, I think the term is power gamer. I enjoy yeah. I enjoy that crunchy numbers and stats and combos and like things where it's like, okay, this is really cool. And if I can pull this off, this is really neat. And even right from the get-go with this one, I feel like maybe I'll use something like the the difference between something like a hard magic system, like something that Brandon Sanderson has, which is very concrete rules, very limited. That's something that I would equate more to maybe like D&D. These are the things you can do and these are the things you can't do. This one feels almost more like a soft magic system where it's like, if you can justify it in the story, you can do it. Well, and assuming the dice agree with you. (laughs) It allows for a lot more fun. And we've seen this more so as things progress. But even in that first fight, there were moments where we could just say, hey, I'm going to try and do this. And then we could do it. You could just do whatever you wanted in that moment that fit with the story. And I really love it. I loved just jumping into it. Um, I know there were a lot of technical errors that I made in that first combat, but it's just a lot. I I enjoy the combat in this a lot. Well, and for me, I know that during like normal like 5e D&D, I'm a very competitive person. I like to go first. I like to do the most damage. And for me, this takes that out of it, which helps me to have a more fun time, honestly, because I don't have to, I'm not sitting here thinking, dang it, I didn't go first or I didn't do the most damage, which is so stupid because that's not what D&D is about. But my brain is automatically just like, I have to win. And I love that about this because you get to choose, you know, okay, everybody chooses at the same time. What approach do I want to take in this? And then there is still that level of chance to it, but it's not as like, yeah, Caleb's over here. He did like 50 damage to this guy, but I did like two it makes you still feel valued as a player because that's another thing is in those instances I don't always feel as valued when I'm unable to do as much damage as I wanted to. I feel like this helps provide every player to feel like they are doing something to help the party. Yeah, that actually reminds me of something that Evan was talking with me about after he recorded the food fight one shot because his character Kai, like his whole character concept was he's a slacker he only has the job because his dad owns the place. So his whole shtick was, I'm just kind of a layabout. I'm not really an effective person. I'm just kind of doing my own thing. And he came to this realization as we were playing that the way this game is structured, he can still play that character, but be helpful to the team. 
Like, there's a sidebar in the rulebook for Avatar Legends, and it says, hey, where's the bending move? And they're like, there is no bending move because it's just part of who you are. You play the game by just being who your character is, and you let everything else follow after that. I love that. Yeah, I remember in that first fight, like, j even just like the creativity of using the buzzard wasp honey, whatever <laughs> yeah. it is they make. Yeah, <laughs> this was kind of a case study of how creative you can be with your problem solving in this game. Like, seeing how these characters really work together with all of the full rules now, not just working off the quick start like we were doing with the one shots. A wild episode, but just a lot of fun. And that kind of takes us from episodes zero up through three. But I have one more maybe kind of egotistical question. And that question is, who is your favorite NPC from these episodes? <laughs> uh, oh. So we've got Bari and Takushi. My runner up, I will tell you, is Takushi. But that's just because I like saying his name with a southern <laughs> accent. Takushi. Takushi. <laughs> Fun fact about Bari and Takushi, they are actually directly inspired by two of my uncles. Yes. <laughs> I have these two uncles who live down in the deserts of southern Utah. One of them was the postmaster for his town for decades and decades, and the other, literally, his job was to go into the desert and collect ants for ant farms. It's amazing. <laughs> Someone's gonna do it? Yeah, and he had, like, a private plane. He got his pilot's license, and when the ants weren't biting in Utah, he would fly down to Arizona where they were biting, and so yeah, that was the inspiration for Bari and Takushi. I love it. I love it every time it's I hear it. It's my favorite. Somebody's got to collect the ants. Exactly. Jobs you never think of. But yeah, we've got Bari, we've got Takushi, we've got Lang Yin, we've got Shin Lai, but then obviously we've still got Wan Shitong and Yong Tan and Zhang Tao. I do love <laughs> Zhang Tao. Zhang Tao's great. My personal favorites at this point are Bari and Takushi, like as a pair. Yeah, Jean Lai is probably my favorite from that first bit. I feel like I would have hit it off with Lang Yin if there would have been a little more time for that. Mm. Like, we obviously have a rapport and, like, I can use her kitchen whenever. But, yeah, Jean Lai, I don't know, something about her. She's just got that sass. Like, she runs the library, really, and that's fun. Right on. <laughs> Well, do you guys have any other thoughts from these first few episodes before we wrap up here? I just think that it's been forever. I can't, <laughs> like, my brain is having a hard time wrapping around, like, we're well into the double digits now of recorded episodes. Yeah. Like, And it, it blows my mind that episodes zero to three feel like forever ago. They do. Especially we finished a full, like, intense arc. Mm -hmm. But we'll talk about that more in future episodes. But for now, <laughs> thanks so much for listening and thank Thanks so much for being an ImpTab patron. Through your astounding generosity, you are making dreams come true, and you're helping us bit by bit to gather the resources we need to just tell more stories for you and for the rest of our fans. All of your contributions, they mean the world to us, essentially, because it's those contributions that allow us to make these worlds in the first place. And so if you have questions, comments, or anything else, 10,000 things related that you'd like us to discuss on the talkback, feel free to let us know by reaching out on social media with the handle at improvtabletop or email us at improvtabletop at gmail.com. We'll add it to the list and hopefully you'll hear our response during a future episode. But until next time, I'm Ned Wilcock, real human being, and I've been joined by... <laughs> Caleb Anderton, the real human being. McKenna Steele, the cat. And Christian Randall, the simulacrum. The what? It's a magic thing. <laughs> Much love and stuff, everybody. We'll catch you next time on the obligatory talkback. Oh.